0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Be successful and success is really, you know, a relative kind of term, but I would say and you've probably heard this before because I've said it before, I've listened to all the podcasts that a person who is truly a happy person successful per- or rich person is someone who's happy with what they have. So being rich is not about monetary wealth. It's about, you know, being truly satisfied, being truly happy with, with what you have and, you know, not kind of looking to see, you know, how I can always be making more, but being totally content with with where you're at. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab Podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V.
1: Hey, hey, it's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. My name is V. and you're now listening to my show, the Real Estate Lab Podcast. Let me ask you this. Are you interested in keeping more money for yourself? Do you know about the tax loopholes that the mainstream media keep on telling us that is only available for the rich? You know the loopholes that someone in a high office used to not pay any taxes at all? Our guest is here today to show you how you can benefit also. If you are an overworked doctor, you can participate in this. If you are a spouse of a dentist who happened to run your Airbnb rental on the side, you can participate in this. It worked even for the rest of us worker bees that are trapped in the rat race. You will wonder why your CPA never discussed about this tax deduction with you after listening to our show today. This guest and I, we discuss about a tool called cost segregation and how you can use it to save millions of dollars from our at least favorite uncle, Uncle Sam. So who is our guest today? He is a blockchain enthusiast. He is a super people connector. These guys know pretty much everyone you need to know in the real estate industry. He is super super busy yet he volunteered for a nonprofit and helped raise over $100,000 for needy widows, orphans and underprivileged families. He's also a licensed Realtor with the Israeli Ministry of Justice. Now that's just one small part of this guest's impressive resume. So who is this person? As a business director at a national cost segregation leader, Madison Speck, he helped numerous of investors save on their taxes every year. Over the last 14 years, Madison Speck has done over 15,000 studies covering all 50 states. And what's the result? Over $3 billion in tax saving. That's super impressive. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Mr. Yona Weiss. Yona is on a mission to get to 1,000 posts on BiggerPockets. So if you are a member on BiggerPockets and you see any posts that he can add value to, make sure, make sure to tag him. Also be on the lookout for his new podcast called Wise Advice. Make sure you check out Yona's profile on LinkedIn and bigger pockets as well. If you're interested for a free consultation with Yona, check the show note for the link. Real quick, if you have not leave a review, a 5 star rating, or subscribe to the Birthday Lab podcast, just do me a huge favor and head on over to iTunes after the show to do it. It would help me out tremendously. Last but not least, make sure you join our free Facebook community as well. I want to give out a huge shout out to our admin, Rajesh Takshindani and Vinny Chopra, one of our expert guests. They have recently closed on a 200-unit apartment in Orlando, Florida. I am sure you can learn a ton from them. Just head on over to www.eastwestventures.co. Slash AIMS to join. All right, let's dive into my conversation with Yona Weiss from Madison Specs. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Lab Podcast. It is my honor to have Yona Weiss here. Yona, shalom. How are you doing? <laughs>
0: Shalom. I am doing well, V. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Awesome. I, I saw your schedule this morning at the, on LinkedIn. It's a crazy schedule. So I really appreciate you jumping on with me here. So let's just dive right in. I understand you had a background in education for more than two decades doing that. What were you um, doing in, in that field?
0: Really learning and teaching. I'm like, I'm a lifetime learner. So I love to learn and love to teach. And I have uh, six kids. So it's part of my, you know, even from when I was, when I was young, a teenager, I was, you know, a camp counselor and and doing some, you know, high school tutoring. And so it's kind of been in my blood just to kind of, you know, something you can help others and, you know, teach them and share, share your knowledge.
1: So then at what point did you say you want to get involved in real estate?
0: Uh, You know, I guess it was about five years ago when, you know, I just needed some, some things happened in my life. We were really changing, you know, some environments and I was just looking to opportunities and I I wasn't really looking for real estate to to be honest, but I, I thought about it. What is a field that I would like to get into? I didn't want to go into any more formal schooling. I had been in formal schooling For postgraduate, you know, for a long time. So I I didn't want to go back to school to learn something new. At the same time, I thought, what would be a field that I could, you know, pick up by just mentoring, apprenticing with other people and kind of learning on the go? And what could potentially have the most lucrative outcome? And real estate just kind of naturally made sense. And I had a lot of people that I knew were in the field already. So I just reached out to a few people and a couple of opportunities came my way and just kind of jumped in.
1: Awesome. So what did you do at, uh, at the beginning?
0: So at the beginning, I started out with a friend of mine who his uncle owned a small boutique commercial real estate financing firm. So we were doing uh, mortgage brokering. I was just learning from him everything about commercial real estate at that point. And mm-hmm. Brokering loans and hard money loans and, you know, kind of sourcing financing, underwriting, uh, you name it.
1: So, in in a few short years, you said four or five years ago, in a few short years, how did you go from someone who is new in the field to now your name is synonymous with cost segregation?
0: I think it has to do, like I said before, connecting with and really apprenticing the real experts because you're not going to learn things on your own. You're not going to become great on your own. Just, you know, being a, a self-made like, like, like that even exists. There's no such thing as self-made. You really have to learn from those who have done it before you. And and that's kind of why I got involved with Madison specs, the company I currently work for. They're literally the experts in the field. You have people who've been in the industry for for decades and doing everything In the commercial real estate field, so just you know learning side by side from them.
1: So the topic that we will be discussing today is obviously cost segregation, which is an area that you are an expert in. Let's just take a basic step here. I I understand cost segregation is more or less you take a building and you break out each component of that building and you depreciate it over time according to the IRS code. Can you just kind of walk us through who does what and how does that work? At what point do we go to medicine spec yourself or at what point do we go to a CPA? Just just the whole thing, how the whole thing put together.
0: It's a really interesting idea that concentration allows you to accelerate depreciation, like you mentioned. That, But CPAs don't necessarily do this because it's something engineers need to do. It's something a firm that needs to, that specializes in this, needs to actually take part In preparing that according to the IRS rules, which is why accountants really don't specialize in this. Albeit, there are many, there are many firms, accounting firms, that will do this in-house. So they'll have engineers in-house that do this, but those are usually the large accounting firms, the big four, you know, the large accounting firms, regular accounts won't do this. What we do is, like you mentioned, break down the property into those small, you know, those assets. Instead of taking the tax write-off every single year, a small amount over you know 39 years or over 27 years, you can actually take a larger amount in the first five years by front-loading a certain portion of that.
1: Can you talk more about the front-loading component and how each asset has a certain lifespan, right? So you, how do you categorize what goes to what, and how does bonus uh, appreciation? And depreciation plays into all
0: this. So yeah, so the the main categories, you know, if you're not doing conservation, you're just taking what's called straight line depreciation. Okay, you buy a building, the IRS allows you to write off the entire value of that building over for commercial a 39 year period, or for residential multifamily over 27 and a half year period. The front loading and the reallocating of assets comes into play when the engineer, the conservation engineer, comes in and Really, there's two, uh, three main categories. One main category is the actual structural components of the building. And that's what most people just take everything. And if they're doing straight line depreciation, they just throw everything into that bucket and take a small deduction each year. But that's really not accurate. Even according to the tax code, you're supposed to be separating it out and really doing cost segregation according to the actual right way of depreciating your property. The other two categories are what's called personal property, which depreciate over a five-year period, and that can include anything from furniture to appliances, you know, fixtures, lighting fixtures. If you have special purpose plumbing, if you have cabinetry, countertops, things like that in a building, even carpeting or floor tiling will actually fall under that five-year category, which means you can depreciate the entire value of all of those things in the first five years. Now, the second category is land improvements, which depreciate on a 15-year schedule. Okay, so now we have three categories. We have the main structural components of the building, and think of that like the structure. And that's the main component. That's usually going to consist of the majority of the value of the property. Then you have the other two components, which are the, the personal property or the tangible movable property, which isn't necessarily always movable, but the IRS considers it to be so, and that depreciates on a five-year schedule. The third category is the 15-year property, the land improvements, and that can include anything from landscaping to pavements, curbing, asphalt. If you have a parking lot, if you have a driveway, if you have a sidewalk on your property, right? Even a you know, a path, all of that, all of the landscaping depreciates on a 15-year schedule. Now you mentioned bonus depreciation, how does that work? It's actually not something separate from conservation, it's the same thing. It just allows you, the IRS came up with a new rule that allows you to take, instead of separating out those three categories, the five-year, the 15-year, and the 27-and-a-half-year, you can actually now take the entire five- and 15-year property, meaning anything that depreciates in less than 20 years, and you're allowed to take that entire amount in year number one, which that's called 100% bonus depreciation. So that's probably the biggest thing that's happened to the real estate tax world in probably the last 20, 30 years.
1: Okay, so I just want to clarify something. When you mentioned earlier the commercial buildings, the depreciation is over 39 years? Yes. Okay, so does count as apartments or commercial buildings for retails and say strip malls and whatnot?
0: So apartments fall under the residential category. So even if there are, you know, a 300 unit multifamily apartment complex, that IRS still considers that residential. Even though it's you know theoretically a commercial property, but for tax purposes, it's residential. Commercial would include anything else. So whether it be office, retail, industrial, you know self storage, and anything in between.
1: okay. A follow up to that is regarding the land improvement. I understand that cost segregation doesn't really work in mobile home parks. But, in your example that you said earlier, you have a 15 years period for land improvement. Does that work in that scenario also
0: absolutely. In fact, mobile home parks can actually be one of the best I guess the word I'm looking for is someone who could take the most advantage I can't even think of a word right now i'm going <laughs> I've been going since way early this morning At most advantageous parks, <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little giddy right now. Yeah, mobile home parks can actually get probably the most tax deductions from cost segregation than any other type of asset out there. And, and that's because in many cases, mobile home parks are entirely, especially when they're entirely tenant-owned homes. So the tenants actually own homes. You as the landowner just own the land, Right. But you right. own the land improvements, which includes the pavements, right, the, the pads under each home and all the landscaping, the roads in between them. So basically what you own is the land, which land itself doesn't depreciate. So there's a certain amount to every property that you have to separate for land, land allocation, which does not depreciate. And then you have land improvements. There are some structural components there in Malone the parks like sewage and you know main structural piping and electric, stuff like that. But the majority of that is going to be land improvements. And you're looking at literally sometimes mobile home parks where they're all completely tenant-owned homes can be 60 70% of the entire value is that 15-year land improvement. Now, when you're talking about bonus depreciation, that means you can take that entire tax deduction in the first year. Okay? So let me use the real numbers, right? What does okay. that mean? Let's say you buy a property for a million dollars, a mobile okay. home park. And let's say, right? Let's say it's after land. I mean, you bought it for a million two hundred, and you separated two hundred thousand for land. Okay. Well, they have a million dollar property. Okay. Seventy percent, let's say potentially, can be that land improvements. That means you can have a seven hundred thousand dollar tax deduction in the first year for buying a million dollar property.
1: Right, and you have to actually spend seven hundred thousand dollars worth of or no. nothing. Okay.
0: No. no, think about it. If you buy a million-dollar property and you're financing it, let's say you're putting down $200,000, $250,000. Okay. Now you get a $700,000 tax deduction. So you can spend $200,000 and this is really one of the only assets out there and get a $700,000. And it's crazy, but that's exactly how it happens. And I have people with mobile home parks reaching out to me left and right because this is something that is just blowing people's minds. And and it's really true. Now, not every mobile home park will have that you know seventy percent. That is an extreme example because a lot of times there's some you know some park-owned homes as well, and so that will contribute to the more the structural components, et cetera. But you know it's usually at least fifty percent is what we're talking mobile home parks. So that's huge. Golf course is another one actually that that fits into that category. But multifamily properties usually is more like around a twenty percent, twenty to thirty percent allocation. Mm -hmm. Which is still great, which means you can buy a million dollar property, get a two, three hundred thousand dollar tax write-off, which again is incredible. It almost doesn't make sense, but (laughs) but it's true. (laughs) But it's true.
1: Well, yeah, it's true. And you know, depreciation is one of those things that the IRS force you to to take regardless. You know, you when you sell a building, you have to pay for recapture regardless. So I don't see why not just going in and, you know, take the depreciation and accelerate it.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Take as much advantage as you can now. Take that cash flow, especially if you need those tax deductions. Take it now and, and use it.
1: So, in let's say in the scenario of a syndication and I'm the GP, I don't need the depreciation how is it possible that i can pass it over to some of the limited partners that need that tax write off let's say the limited partner is a doctor or a dentist that you know has a lot of income how how does that work and also talk about the bonus depreciation who qualify for it or, or is there a certain asset or a certain investor profile that that uh, need to qualify
0: No, the bonus depreciation you don't need any qualification in that and i'll get to the the first question second but the bonus depreciation is really a choice you can choose to take that hundred percent bonus depreciation I mean, you can take to choose to front load that entire amount in the first year you can also just choose to do the regular cost segregation which accelerates it and still gets you a larger tax deduction over the first five years but it doesn't get you that whole big huge chunk in the first year now Back to your first question, which is about the limited partners versus the general partners, who's getting the tax deductions? Unfortunately, high net worth individuals who are you know very high network, high you know W-2 jobs at doctors, lawyers, they may be getting passive, wanting passive income from the investments they're doing as a limited partner. However, they may not be able to take advantage of the tax deductions beyond their actual income from the properties. What I mean is If you have an income from the property, whatever income is coming from the property, the depreciation can now be used to offset that income, okay? What we're doing is you have, let's say, $100,000 income, $100,000 of tax deductions. It's wiped out. You have zero tax liability. You pay zero income tax on the property.
1: On the property. On the
0: property, correct. However, if the doctor has a $400,000, $500,000 income from his job, he's not going to be able to use... The t- depreciation to offset that income it's only going to be sheltering the income from the property.
1: Okay, so how does someone like that because I've, I've heard a lot of people who said sure. they can pass this deduction through to the limited partners. so Correct. and that's you know, how,
0: how does it work for them? So how it works is like this. There's really two things. Number one is that yes, the deductions get passed to those partners, but they may not be able to use them. Okay. Okay. So it means they'll be able to use it to offset the entire amount of their income. Okay. Which is great. Which means whatever income they're getting is going to be tax-free, at least in this first five years. That's usually the case for those passive incomes. However, it may just, it may stop there. Okay. And they're not going to be able to shelter their tax or their their taxable income from other, from their W-2 job. However, Hmm. There are really two other things. I said there was two things, but there's three. <laughs> the first thing was that, <laughs> right? The, right. the second one is really is two. The, so the first one is that whatever income the limited partners get from the property, they can use the tax deductions from the depreciation to offset that, meaning they don't have pay taxes on that income. However, the other thing is, is that... If they have other passive investments, okay. Let's say they have other passive uh, income, whether it be from other properties they own, or whether it be from other, maybe someone has another business interest, passive income. The depreciation can also be used to offset that income as well, meaning it doesn't have to be limited to per property because the depreciation kind of cross pollinates to other properties as well or other passive income. Okay, so that's one one advantage that other investors could have. The other thing is, and really this is the ticker, and this doesn't necessarily apply to the limited partners or the passive investors, but really applies to anyone and everyone, is that if you can get the real estate professional status, okay, which is a box that you check in your tax returns, which shows that you are materially involved in real estate investing, have ownership and are materially involved in investing, in actually managing or operating or you know, being involved in renovations of any kind or brokering properties, you can actually use depreciation to offset all of your income, not just from the properties, but from any other source. But it gets better. It doesn't necessarily have to be you. It can be your spouse. Okay, and this is really where the ticker is, or the kicker, whatever you want to call it. This mm-hmm. is where the big bang is. You're right. getting. Let's say you have a you're you're a doctor and your spouse is a real estate agent, right, or is involved in property management, or involved in in running some properties, you now qualify as a joint jointly filing taxes as a tax is a real estate professional. Now you can use conservation, you can use those depreciation deductions to offset all of your income from any source and your spouse's.
1: Okay. and it's it's fairly easy to get qualified right I think it's around uh, 16 to 18 hours of birthday activity a week to get you qualified?
0: yeah it's it's um, 750 hours a year. It's not particularly easy but I mean in, in the fact that it's it's possible okay which means that it's not it needs to be tracked those hours need to be tracked but yeah anyone can do it anyone can do it. you don't need to any qualification you just need to actually have the hours. More than fifty percent of your time has to be involved in real estate, so if you have a w two job, it's probably not possible or feasible to also spend equally or more hours in real estate materially involved. However, if you have a spouse, that's really the way to go
1: okay so so just to recap in order to take advantage of this, you need to be a real estate professional or it doesn't really matter it cannot offset your active income
0: correct, and it is it's It's the best way to take advantage of this. It's not the only way, but it's definitely the best way.
1: Okay. And so let's just take a step back and say, so cost segregation, does it work for, let's say a single family homes where someone bought it for as an Airbnb investment?
0: Yes, it can be for Airbnb investment. It can be for any type of property. My general rule of thumb is that if a property is purchased for over a million dollars, there's usually, it's almost a no brainer that there's going to be tax benefit there it's going to be worthwhile. When the property is smaller than that, maybe under a half a million dollars, it usually doesn't even make sense. It just, there's not enough meat on the bone. Again, we're talking about, unless it's the mobile home park, because again, there <laughs> we, we could have, you know, so there's so much meat on the bone. But if it's not, you know, you're talking about a 20%, maybe reallocation. There's just not a lot there when, when we're talking about the actual tax deductions. So, so yeah, any property can do can do it. Doesn't have to be multifamily. Doesn't have to be commercial. Can be even a single family house if it's if the purchase price is high enough, can be can make it worthwhile.
1: Right. As I'm asking this because um, I'm thinking of a friend who just recently bought a single family homes in um, Southern California for um, Airbnb. So, in that situation, I understand you can break up the component, different components inside a house and write it off depends on the schedule that the IRS has out there. What about the stuff that she bought for her business, let's say beds and everything else that goes yeah. along with that business?
0: All that goes in there, because if you think about it, all that stuff is part of the personal property, Paul, part of that fits into that five-year category, right? It's part of, you know, it's a, you think of it as a business, but it's really, you know, it's an investment property and all of that, you know, movable property goes along with it.
1: So, all that shadows go along with it right there, and just five years you can write everything off the year first year correct, so she already let's say passed last year's and now we're going into the second year of owning this property. can she go back and and uh yes. retrospect and do it
0: yeah, retroactively, you can go back, you can get the tax deductions retroactively, which is incredible because there's almost there's almost no reason not to get like. Like what we do, we'll provide like a feasibility analysis, which will show you what, you know, the tax benefits would be if you're just doing straight line. A lot of people, they don't know about cost segregation and they're just doing straight line depreciation, meaning they're taking that little amount every year. There are many people who don't even know about depreciation and their, their accountants are really doing them a huge disservice. And not even giving them the tax write-offs that they so rightfully deserve. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just people taking regular straight line depreciation. If you did that and you've owned a property for a year, two, three, five years, you can actually go back retroactively and get those missed accelerated tax deductions in the first year. And it's like bonus depreciation because you're getting what you missed over those past five years. And you're going to get all of that in year number one because that stuff depreciates on a five-year schedule. So in the case of your friend who just had it for one year, actually, if it's been within the past year and they haven't yet claimed any type of cost segregation, then they can actually claim bonus depreciation as well, even retroactively, as long as they didn't opt out of it by by depreciating property separately.
1: So if they did the straight-line depreciation year one, now going into YouTube, they can do a cost study and and claim those depreciation. Correct. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so what <laughs> what would some what would something like that usually cost? And um, when does it make sense to do it? When does it make sense not to do it?
0: Like I said, it's definitely worthwhile. Any property over a half a million dollars, or especially over a million dollars, it's worthwhile to reach out to a firm like ours to get a quote or an estimate. And in that, we'll show you that analysis of what the difference would be if you're doing straight line depreciation versus if you're doing conservation. So that's, that's no cost whatsoever. We do that as a service for free. Anyone can reach out anytime, get that. And it's really, you know, it helps you to make an educated decision to see if it's worthwhile or not, because there's no real black and white. Is it worthwhile? Is it not? It really depends on a person's personal tax situation and if they need those extra deductions there is a lot of advantage to doing it and there are some disadvantages there are some reasons why a person may not need it they may not need those tax deductions it may just be going to waste and they may so it's definitely worthwhile to reach out for that what about the timing like i said you can do it retroactively you don't have to do it in the first year of ownership you can and a lot of people do because they want to take advantage of those tax deductions right away Want to pass those to the investors? They want to, you know, offset other income. They may have other gains. They may have, and they can use the conservation in the first year. So definitely worthwhile to try to get a hold of it in the first year. But again, you do not need to, and you can actually get it back retroactively.
1: Okay, another question just oh, came the, up: f- the cost also,
0: right? You, you yeah, mentioned but, the cost, right? Uh, we'll include in that what the cost would be, which is not based at all on the tax benefits. Not based at all on contingent to what you're getting gonna save from it. Rather it's a one time flat fee based on the scope of work and has a lot to do with, you know, the number of units or the square footage and what type of property it is. But generally speaking, in most of the cases I've seen, unless we're talking about huge massive properties, somewhere between four and seven thousand dollars in that range.
1: That's a lot cheaper than what I've heard before. I've heard somewhere between thirteen and fifteen grand. And so what you're saying is it's definitely worth a shot to to just try it out and, you know, call your firm or call some other firm, whoever offer the feasibility studies for free, basically. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I mean, get, get the free analysis. You know what I mean? Like check it out, see if it's worthwhile, see if in your situation it would make sense or not. And that's that's that doesn't cost anything. It's It's really quite educational, actually.
1: Right. So earlier I mentioned another question that I just have is, let's say you're buying a building, but the owner had already had that building for a long time and already did the cost act, did the bonus depreciation. I'm, I'm sure it was different. You know, this new bonus depreciation that President Trump just passed, just, you know, still new. So in that situation, let's say if you are assuming the loan and nothing changed, you're buying this property but you're buying the llc you're not buying the the property itself so no title transfer you're just buying the llc in that situation does it work still for cost sec
0: because what happens is the irs considers depreciation starts over when there's transfer of ownership as long as it's a an arms length, uh, non arms length, tra- uh, sorry, an arms length transaction. Meaning, if you're passing it just from one LLC to another, but you're just the same person, uh-huh. then, then there's no real change of ownership in that case, and depreciation does not start over. If you're passing it over to a close blood relative as well, the IRS considers that a non arms length transaction, and therefore, this is also not considered a change of ownership, really, because it's really kept in the family. However, if you're, you know, just buying a property. From someone else, even if it's right that LLC transfer, you are actually buying the property. The IRS considers it, and the new purchase price is what is actually being depreciated by you. So, even if the previous owner bought the property for a million dollars five years ago, and you're bu- and they're depreciating it on a five, you know, on that schedule for a million dollars, that's their depreciable basis. That's how much tax write off. You buy the property for ten million dollars now your tax write-off is 10 million dollars
1: okay so same situation let's just say that the oh the seller still has that building right bought it for a million still has five hundred thousand dollars on the loan i'm coming in i'm giving a million dollars to the seller i'm assuming that half a million so at that point is my base one and a half million or is it a million
0: your basis is whatever the actual transaction price was so it doesn't really matter if you're assuming a loan or not it matters what the you know the settlement statement says what's the closing price that's in the IRS that establishes the new basis and the new ownership
1: got it okay and the other thing i want to ask you is the regard to the methodology of cost segregation because i when i read on the irs website just briefly there's rule of thumb and then there is actually the the court have no methods to Cossack. So when your company, Madison Specs, come out and, and do something like that, is that a procedure that your company developed? Is is it different from company to, the, to company, or is pretty much standard all across?
0: It's not really – I wouldn't say it's standard all across, but if you – if like you said, if you look on the IRS website, if you go and scroll through the conservation audit techniques guide, there are really a, several different methods of doing conservation, right? And the one you mentioned, the rule of thumb method, okay? Right. Something that the, someone who can just kind of guesstimate based on some experience but, but very little details, can kind of come up with a number you know, of what the depreciation should be without any actual facts, without any actual findings. If you read the clearly what it says there, it says that that is not – I actually don't know this by heart, but, <laughs> but it says there. You can actually look it up there. It says there that you can, it, it's not really recognized and won't hold up in an audit by the IRS. So they actually say that. They say you can do this, but it doesn't really hold up strongly in an audit. However, there is something called a quality conservation study, which is also listed there in what is, uh, those different approaches of doing conservation, And that's, uh, the approach that we, we use Madison Specs and probably the approach that I would assume the majority of, you know, large conservation firms like ours are using. And that's an engineering based approach and they follow up all the the details. And there's actually, if you read that, you'll see there are 13 principles, the IRS delineates that go into a quality conservation study, which include, you know, there's a numbering system that they developed. There's a, no, a proper nomenclature you have to use. You have to find, you have pictures. You have to have all of course, of documentation um, of actually being at the property. There's uh, the list goes on. So, you know, when you when you're looking at a quality Cossack study, which it says explicitly there in the code, that's what will stand up to an audit. So you want to make sure that you're following the rules.
1: So how do I differentiate between a bad Cossack study and a good one?
0: I mean, you want to ask: is this a quality approach? Is this an engineering approach? Is that, or you know, is what's the experience? What has you know, something you want to ask the, the firm? what's your experience in conservation? You know, is this something you've been doing for a year or two or 10 or how long, how many studies have you done? How many times have you, have your clients been audited? If they have ever been audited, have, have your, has your, have your studies stood up to those audits? I and mean, these are questions that I get all the time from clients. So these are something that you need to you know, just be aware of and make sure that you're doing it in the right way. Listen, if you have, you know, high risk tolerance, there are even some, like these, like you said, these rule of thumb type things that people are doing. I, I actually know some accountants that they've never done a real conservation study and they just kind of guesstimate. And they keep the numbers pretty low just to be conservative, but they'll guesstimate. Say, okay, let's say 4% is to land improvements. Like, oh, wow. who said like <laughs> You know, like, and they'll, and they'll just put that in, in, in the numbers. They don't have anything to prove it. They don't have anything to back it up. They don't necessarily have, you know, square footage and all. Oh, they'll just put in the depreciation four percent they'll come up with that number and i asked them once like one of my one of my friends is an accountant who does this i said like what do you do if you ever get audited he's like well like what there's not four percent of the properties and land improvements like of course there is <laughs> like it's just logic meaning he, he's using a logical approach and like like show me like there's landscaping here you're saying that's not even four percent like, so that's kind of his logic And he feels comfortable enough (laughs) with that logical approach, but I I wouldn't necessarily recommend it.
1: (laughs) And and on a side note, I want to ask you, so in a Cossack study, how do you know how much percentage to put aside to allocate to land that you cannot depreciate?
0: That's a really good question, actually. And, And there is real, no definitive way of deciding that. And the truth of the matter is because that's so, we, we usually don't make that decision. We'll leave that to our clients or their accountants to kind of figure out what that is. Now there are some ways the IRS doesn't because the IRS doesn't say explicitly how much you have to allocate to when. It just has to be some sort of reasonable approach. So some people use they'll use an appraisal if they have a third-party appraisal, we'll come in and do that. Sometimes they'll use the the county assessor, what the property taxes would assess the land allocation to be. But sometimes the county assessor and specifically places like California and other places where the land allocation is going to be very, very high. The land value is going to be really high. A lot of people aren't comfortable with that. And we'll try to take another approach to find a lower land allocation. I mean, you're talking about I know people that, you know, California that have 50 to 60 percent is being allocated to land. So you're talking about whatever's left over from your purchase price, that's what you can depreciate after allocating to land. It's ridiculous. But so they want to try to cut that down as much as possible.
1: So then so then back to the mobile home park situation, it, the whole place is just, just land. So you writing you cannot write off 100 of, percent of your purchase price?
0: Well, like I said before, it's not really land, it's also land improvements. And and there and there may be A reason to allocate more to land, but in many cases, you know, mobile home parks are in places where the land value is actually really low. So to say I'm buying a mobile home park for a million dollars, you know, and maybe it's five acres or whatever, but five acres of land in, you know, who knows where Tennessee is not gonna be worth a million dollars, it's gonna be worth like ten thousand dollars, right? So to allocate more than ten percent more than 1% in that case to to land is not even logical, but you're still going to have to put something reasonable so that, but it it will not be the entire amount. Like I said, the majority of that case is going to be the land improvements will be where the real value is.
1: Thank you for clarifying that. I, you know, that's, that's the part where I kept on being confused about because to me, mobile home part is just like all land. Right. But and what you're saying is you're still breaking out the part by component you're still going in with land improvement the the land itself is the land itself you still have to allocate something and then everything else you can depreciate correct that actually is a light bulb moment for me <laughs> all right, so let's just fast forward to another um question that I have and this is regarding ten thirty one exchange so you have property a you Do your Cossack study, you do your bonus depreciation, Mm you write off everything, and then let's say 10 years later, now it's time to sell. You do a 1031 exchange, you roll that into property B, and you do the same thing. And then eventually you go to a property, C, D, E, and F. Eventually you have to, you either die or you pay taxes. So at at that point, how does the depreciation recapture work?
0: That's an interesting question. First of all, just to clarify for people who are listening and the depreciation recapture tax is a tax you have to pay upon sale of a property. Okay. You take depreciation it's great while you have the property, but when you sell, you have to actually pay a tax on that to get around that. If you do a 1031 exchange, not only as you know, if you don't know. The Tether Real Exchange allows you to defer the capital gains taxes, meaning the gain that you're getting on the sale of that property. You buy a property for ten thousand dollars, sell for a million dollars, you have to pay twenty five percent or fifteen percent capital gains tax. If you the Real Exchange that, you can get around that. You can defer that. Okay, you're also deferring the depreciation recapture tax. So we're pushing it out, we're pushing it further down, and you're rolling it down the road, as they say. And like you said, until you die, I like to, you know, you swap till you drop. Right. Yeah. Keep keep going. Keep going as far as you can. Um, At that point, if, if a person, you know, at that point, they either die or they pay taxes, like you said, but there are a couple ways around it. There's actually, you can, you know, put it in a trust. A lot of people do, they'll put the properties in a trust and um, you have that be inherited by the children, which would actually, they would not be hit at that point with the, uh, with the depreciation, neither with the person, who owned it. So there is really a way to get around that even, even at the end of the road.
1: But let's just say you, you want to just cash out and, <laughs> and use the money at that point. Right. I'm trying to see how yeah. I understand the depreciation schedule walk with the 1031, sure. it walked from property to property. So in the end, let's just say you have done this three, four times. You do, you go back to the beginning and you pay taxes on, on that, on the first property and then the second property. and
0: mm, No, I mean, it, you're, once the property has been fully depreciated, which is really something also interesting, once it's been fully depreciated, then there's no depreciation recapture because there's no longer any depreciation left. There, there's nothing left in the basis.
1: No, but so if we, if we depreciated and did the um, bonus depreciation and we did the Cossack, mm-hmm. we take everything out year one. So really, we're taking everything so there's nothing left to, to depreciate year 2, right?
0: No, well, again, we're not taking everything. What we're doing is we're taking those assets that are accelerated. So the 5-year property, the 15-year property, and again, let's just take our example, multifamily, let's say it's 20%. Okay? okay. So 20% okay. you're taking in year number 1. Year number 2 and, you know, 2 through 26 you actually have the rest of the 80% of the value of the building that you are yes depreciating. So just to give you some numbers and an example of what that would look like, let's say your property is a million dollars. Again, just keep it around. If you did straight line depreciation, you'd be getting about $30,000 a year as depreciation. Right. Now, if you take bonus depreciation you get 20% of that 200,000 upfront in the first year, now in years number two through twenty-six. You now have instead of the two hundred thousand you took already, you have eight hundred thousand to depreciate over the rest of the twenty-six years. So instead of that thirty thousand, you would have had straight line every year. You took two hundred thousand in first year, and then for two through twenty-six, you're going to be left with about a twenty-five, twenty-four thousand dollar depreciation. So you're still going to be getting depreciation deductions every year. You're just, it's just not going to be as much as it would have been originally.
1: Got it, got it, okay, and then, if you did this game long enough and you don't have anything left to depreciate, you don't have to pay for recapture,
0: yeah, pretty much
1: okay and i and I understand the recapture taxes uh cap at twenty five percent
0: it's a little more complicated than that but but in most cases for property, yes,
1: so if let's just say you are a high net worth individual and you're paying a lot of taxes, where your tax rate could be in the high 40s, and you can write off a lot of your income by get, either getting a uh, real estate professional status or having your spouse getting that status.
0: Mm-hmm. Correct.
1: And then when you have to pay this back, you're only paying in at 25%. You can arbitrage that.
0: Yeah, you could take that route. Yeah, that's, you know, again, there are many strategies, different strokes for different folks, right? You're going to have to look at your long-term strategy, but you also... You know, maybe looking at not paying income tax for X amount of years. And it's really, you know, gonna keep you in the long run with that cash flow coming in.
1: That's that's awesome. Um, is there anything else that I need to ask you that I forget to ask? I'm, I'm <laughs> sure there are many things that, because I've listened, bench listened to a lot of your webinars. And um, I, can tell.
0: I can tell by your question. <laughs> you got all the good questions. <laughs>
1: it's just like you know I'm missing something in in some of those webinars, so that's why I want to ask. And um, yeah, so I'm sure I mi- I miss a lot. So is there a topic that I need to ask and I forgot?
0: I'm sure there is, but I, I really can't think of anything right now.
1: Okay, one last question before I let you go. Then I know that you you have a lot of quotes and Jewish sayings that you like. What is the <laughs> most? <laughs> What's your favorite? Success or mindset quote or Jewish saying?
0: Success or mindset quote or Jewish saying. I guess I would say that be successful. And success is really, you know, a relative kind of term. But I would say, and you've probably heard this before because I've said it before. I've listened to all the podcasts. That a person who is truly a happy person, a successful per- or a rich person, is someone who's happy with what they have. So being rich is not about monetary wealth. It's about, you know, being truly satisfied, being truly happy with, with what you have and, you know, not kind of looking to see, you know, how I can always be making more, but being totally content with, with where you're at.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Yona. I really appreciate you jumping onto to this podcast episode with me today.
0: v. It has been truly my pleasure, and you got me in a, in a funny moment right now, Just been yeah. first day back from two week vacation and literally been non been going nonstop for about like ten eleven hours at this point. So I apologize,' I've been a little a little giddy and uh, and and stuff, but uh, glad we had this opportunity.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Yona.
0: The episode of the Real Estate Lab podcast. Share the show with all your friends. Subscribe and give the show a five stars rating on iTunes. Until next time, have an awesome work week.